Welcome back to another live video with Right Response Ministries. I am your host, Pastor Joel Webin. In this video, I'm going to be addressing uh, multiple questions that James Lindsay uh, put forward a while back on Twitter. Uh, he was addressing Christian nationalists and saying, hey, I want some clear answers in his defense. Uh, it is true that there is a big tent of Christian nationalists. There is a, a ranging spectrum of people with different persuasions, convictions, theology, and so not everybody's going to give the same answer. Um, I understand that. The problem, though, is that uh, some people, they're not just giving different answers, but they're giving ambiguous and vague answers. And so these are certain questions that I think are legitimate questions. I don't think they're just gotcha questions. I'm, I'm sure that James Lindsay is trying to get us, and I have no doubt that this episode he'll appreciate very much. One, because I'm going to be plain and forthright in my speech, my answers. And two, in James Lindsay's mind, it'll be a smoking gun uh, because it will seem extreme uh, for any boomer con post-war thinker, uh, especially an atheist, non-Christian thinker. Uh, but the answers that I'm going to be giving are not radical or extreme uh, if we look at history. And we look at history a little bit further back than just the last 60 years. All right, so that's what I'm going to be doing today, addressing James Lindsay's questions in regards to Christian nationalism. Before we dive in, I have two things that I want to address. One is an announcement, and the second is a word from our first sponsor of the day. So let's start with the announcement. Here we go. We have our upcoming conference, our spring conference. We do two annual conferences with Right Response, a spring and a fall. So we have our fall conference coming up. Check that out online. Go to rightresponseconference.com. It's with Chris Wiley and Jared Longshore, all about the household and the family, marriage and parenting. That's going to be coming up this November. But the conference that I want to specifically address is our spring conference. That's next year, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of next year. We're going to have Pastor Douglas Wilson. We are going to have Brian Sauve from Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. We're going to have uh, Dr. Joseph Boot. We're going to have myself. We're going to have uh, Pastor Michael Foster. And we're also going to have Dale Partridge. Uh, we're also, in addition to seven primary lectures, we're going to have two live uh, podcast. We're going to do one live Theology Applied podcast. That's the podcast that I host, and I'm going to be doing that podcast on the topic of biblical patriarchy. We're going to be drawing out the distinctions between complementarianism, which is always intended to be a halfway house to appease egalitarians and feminists, versus biblical patriarchy. There is a difference between the two. I believe it's high time that complementarianism uh, is buried six feet underground where it belongs. Uh, we hold to biblical patriarchy. Uh, there are abuses of patriarchy, but there is a good biblical patriarchy that should be defended and it should be articulated. So we're going to be dealing with that topic with a live Theology Applied podcast on Friday, March 1st at the conference. I'll be hosting that conversation and the people that I'm going to have joining me for the podcast on stage is Pastor Douglas Wilson, Michael Foster, and also Eric Kahn. Uh, who is an elder with Brian Sauvey, and he hosts the Hard Man podcast. So Eric Kahn, Michael Foster, Doug Wilson, and myself, that's on Friday, a live Theology Applied podcast episode on the topic of biblical patriarchy. 
And then the following day, March 2nd, that's Saturday, we're going to do a live Haunted Cosmos episode, probably on the Watchers and the Nephilim and AI and, and demonic activity today that Christians should be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers in regards to. And so we're going to have Brian Sauvé and his right-hand man for the Haunted Cosmos uh, series podcast. That's Ben Garrett. So Ben Garrett will also be at the conference. I'll be hosting that conversation and uh, throwing it to Brian and Ben to talk about the things that they talk about so well, uh, the obscure things of the Bible, but those things are true and they matter for our lives today. So probably something about watch, you know, the watchers, the Nephilim, demon hybrids, you know, those kinds of things. So it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Again, the title, I guess I shouldn't say again, I haven't said it a single time, but the title for this conference is Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, the subtitle, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. The seven doctrines, those are going to be, each of those will be seven primary sessions, and then we'll have the two live podcasts, Theology Applied and Haunted Cosmos. Those seven doctrines are Reformed Confessionalism, Covenant Theology, Biblical Patriarchy, Presuppositionalism, Kuyperianism, General Equity Theonomy, and Postmillennial Eschatology. So we're going to be talking about how do we restore Christendom and not make the mistakes of the past. We're not looking at Christendom 1.0, but pushing forward to Christendom uh, 2.0, uh, keeping the features, working out the bugs. It's going to be a conference that you do not want to miss. So go and register today because we're about to up the price. Right now, we have the early bird rate, but that uh, window is closing fast. I'm going to give a specific date, uh, probably in the next week or two, for when that window closes. Uh, but it's not going to last very long. So right now, you've got the early bird rate. You need to go and register. Go to rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com. All right, we're going to hop into the episode about James Lindsay and his questions for Christian nationalists. But one last thing, a word from our first sponsor. There are very few things as important as fellowship. Taking the time to spread the gospel is our duty as Christians, but sharing the word over a warm cup of Squirrely Joe's coffee, now that is our passion. Like the caffeine coursing through their veins, Squirrely Joe's is energized by their calling and emboldened to model their relentless faith. Based in Olney, Illinois, their association with the endangered white squirrel isn't just a novelty. It's a reminder that His Majesty can appear in the most unexpected places, in a humble squirrel, through a chance conversation, and even in a simple cup of joe. Share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Squirrely Joe's is owned and operated by Joe Morris, his wife Rachel, and their seven children. They believe in being a truly Christian business where Christ is in the DNA of the business. Joe also believes in living quorum Deo, that means before the face of God, in every aspect of life. Joe is also a pastor of a small Reformed church, and both Joe and Rachel are veterans of the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Army, respectively. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. The coffee is also fantastic. So, don't delay. Visit squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. Again, that's squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. 
All right. So James Lindsay, he posited uh, multiple questions. I've broken them, them, them down into nine specific questions that I'm going to be addressing today. So let's go ahead and dive right in. These are questions uh, posed by James Lindsay for Christian Nationalists to answer. I'm going to try to answer these. Um, again, disclaimer is that uh, the Christian Nationalist tent is a big tent, so not everybody who wears a label would necessarily agree with the answers that I'm going to be giving. Um, however, I think that most would agree to one extent or another, and the benefit of the answers that I'll give is, although they don't necessarily represent everyone who would describe themselves as a Christian Nationalist, at least the answers I'll provide will be clear. They won't be ambiguous. Uh, they won't be dodging the questions. I'm going to give actual answers. I am not ashamed. I, I apologize to absolutely nobody. Um, yeah, I believe that our nation should be Christian. And I believe that the Bible is God's book. And it's not God's book just given to Christian people, but it is God's book, His law word given to all people. All people. So... I believe that God's law is morally right, and that which God deems as morally right is also that which is beneficial and good. God is not arbitrary in his law giving. He is not capricious. Everything that he commands is the morally right thing. It is also the beneficial and good thing. It is that which lends towards the betterment, the flourishing of his image-bearing creatures. All right, so all that being said, without further delay, let's go ahead and jump into the first question. Here it is. Sometimes Christian nationalism suggests that we'll have some kind of magisterial state led by Christians. Which Christians? Who has the right theology? Who has the wrong theology? Again, sometimes Christian nationalism suggests that we'll have some kind of magisterial state led by Christians. Which Christians? Who has the right theology? Who has the wrong theology? The short answer is this, creedal, not confessional, plus the five solas. That's my short answer. Creedal, not confessional, plus the five solas. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the Christian Nationalist Project is a pan-Protestant project. Just like the Christian heritage that we have now, and at its founding, uh, it was not Mormon. It was not Catholic. It was not Eastern Orthodoxy. It was Protestant. It was Protestant. It was the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Baptists, some Lutherans, some Anglicans, but it was a pan-Protestant project. That's the heritage that we have. That's Christendom 1.0 as it pertains to the Americas. And the Christendom 2.0 that I'm advocating for, likewise, would be a pan-Protestant project. Um, and so, therefore, it would be creedal by design, not confessional. What I mean by that is that you would not have reigning as a supreme document in the land the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. You would have uh, creeds that all Christians um, adhere to, historic creeds that have been universally affirmed by the church for centuries. I'm talking about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius Creed, and because I believe it's pan-Protestant, 
pan-Protestant. I think that Catholics will participate in some form or fashion, but there will be a distinction between Protestants and Catholics. And I do believe that this Christian nationalism, this Christendom 2.0, will largely be a Protestant movement because, well, because Rome, on the books, in the Council of Trent, still to this day, has anathematized the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that what changes the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Doug Wilson has said, you can draw a straight line from the gospel of free grace to free men to free markets. So I believe it'll be a pan-Protestant project because Protestants, um, although many have compromised, Protestantism um, is the defender of the free gospel of grace. And so that's why I'm saying it's creedal, not confessional. So it's not a particular Protestant strain, the Baptist or the Presbyterians. It's going to be creedal, not confessional. Now, our Catholic friends will be able to affirm um, these creeds, uh, and that's why I'm saying it's creedal, not confessional, but we will add with these creeds, historic creeds, Nicene Creed, Athanasius Creed, you know, Apostles' Creed, we're not going to add a particular confession that is Baptistic or Presbyterian or Anglican, but we will add the Protestant mantra of the five solas that we are saved as it pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation, soteriology. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And any Roman Catholic who wants to participate with that project is welcome to join us. Uh, by God's grace, I believe that there are many uh, Roman Catholics who are saved, and they're saved precisely because they are bad Catholics. They don't actually know what Rome holds to, and therefore they don't actually hold to those doctrines themselves. They uh, have not anathematized the gospel of free grace, but rather they actually believe what Protestants believe, and they're just a little bit confused. So, uh, and some of that comes from the fact that, you know, Catholic Mass has been in Latin, a language that's dead. Uh, I appreciate Latin, but when you're doing your Mass in Latin until very recently and nobody even knows what you're saying, I mean, even the phrase hocus pocus, right, it comes from, um, it's, it's, it's a variation from a phrase that the priest would utter in Latin when he was performing, you know, administering the Eucharist and performing transubstantiation of the bread literally turning to uh, the flesh and body of Christ and the wine literally turning to the blood of Christ. And, and so the people knew that this was some kind of, they thought it was like a magic trick. That's literally where we get the phrase hocus pocus, um, which again, to my point, just says that most uh not necessarily Catholic priests or cardinals or bishops or, you know, the Pope himself, but many uh, Catholic members, members in a, a Roman Catholic church have no idea what's going on. They didn't know back then, and, and it seems like few actually know uh, Catholic doctrine now. So many Catholics will participate in this product, project because I think many Catholics actually do believe the gospel, and they assume that their Catholic church does too. And I don't know, it depends on their particular priest and who knows these days. Catholics always boast of the fact that, you know, we have the same doctrine and we all believe the same thing. We have so much unity, um, uh, but they can't even agree from one pope to the last pope. So uh, I think a lot of that is uh, a bit exaggerated on the unity front. So all that being said, James' first question, my answer is, you know, in terms of, you know, who decides which Christians are leading? Who has? How do you decide what what is correct Christian theology and what's wrong Christian theology? Well, what you do is you try to get to the you know the the bottom common denominator. Um, you're trying to say, okay, here's the gospel. 
Um, we don't do that in our local churches. We shouldn't do that in our denominations, right? We, we shouldn't just uh, constantly lower everything down to the, the lowest common denominator. We should have robust doctrine, robust preaching, um, robust um, um, trained and developed pastors, and all, all those kinds of things. We should have um, a biblical bar for church membership in our local churches, in our denominations, but at a national level, if we're speaking of the civil magistrate, what should the civil magistrate believe um, and defend? Uh, I think they should believe and defend um, the historic, universally affirmed Christian faith as defined by creeds, not by any particular denominational confession, and adding to these historic creeds, because I believe that it's a distinctly Protestant movement, will add the five solas as well. All right, there's the answer to the first question. Let's go ahead and move on. Number two, do we get a state church, a Christian prince, or a Christian pope as a ruler? The answer is no, no. Um, I think that at some level you could perhaps say that we will have Christian princes, plural, not princess, <laughs> but princes, that you will have multiple Christians uh, fulfilling roles in the civil magistrate. That's the only way it's going to happen. You're going to have to have civil rulers who um, actually love Jesus, who actually are born again, who actually have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel and are seeking to um, apply all of Christ to all of life, even in their vocation of being civil rulers, that they want to legislate righteously by what standard? By God's standard, uh, by uh, the Scripture. And so you're going to have a lot of Christian princes, but no, you're not going to have Caesarism. You're not going to have one particular Christian prince as a monarch. Um, so I think you'll just you'll have a lot of Christian city council members at a local level, and you'll have some Christian mayors, and you'll have Christian governors, and, and we have a lot of that now, but I believe that by God's Spirit, if this is successful, um, that there'll be a mass move of God's Spirit, and there will be more conversion, and there'll also be more discipleship, right? So there's two problems. At one level, uh, we simply don't have enough Christians, and there's simply not enough Christians in America currently. At another level, and I'll get to this a little bit more uh, later on with uh, a more specific question that James asked that addressed this angle of the conversation, but on one level, we don't have enough regenerate people. We don't have enough Christians. On, the, on another level, um, I think that we have had numbers in our favor in the past, but it did not benefit us as much as uh, you would think that it would um, because the numbers that we had uh, were weakened in terms of not quantity, but quality. Uh, that we just, we had weak doctrine. We had weak churches. Uh, my, you know, in a nutshell, what I keep insisting with some of my G3 brothers that, you know, don't like the idea of Christian nationalism. And they think that, you know, Christian nationalism is going to, it's going to cultivate and create and, and be a proponent of nominal Christianity, nominal Christian churches, nominal Christian pastors, nominal Christian preaching, a nominal Christian gospel that's going to produce nominal Christians and a nominal Christian culture. And some of those nominal Christians will be Christian in name only. They actually, they won't just be nominal Christians, but they'll actually be um, believing unbelievers, right? They, they will be professing Christians who profess Christ, but do not possess Christ. They'll actually be unregenerate. Um, and I understand that concern. I just think that it's it's completely opposite from the reality. The, the reality is that nominal Christian culture and false converts is not a result of the state being faithful to God's word. It's a result of the church being faithless to God's word. The problem in America isn't that we had Christian laws on the books, which we still do, um, 
but it's not that we had Christian laws on the books as it pertains to the state. The problem in America is that our churches began to compromise. So I, I believe that ultimately nominal Christian culture is the product not of a faithful state, but a faithless church. Nominal Christian culture is the product not of a faithful state, but a faithless church. Right? That's in a nutshell, I think, where me and my G3 brothers disagree. They see something as a problem that I see as a problem too, but we think it's caused by two different things. They think, don't make the state Christian. If the state is too Christian, then you're going to get you know, Christians in name only. And you'll get some of those. But the epidemic of false converts who think they're saved, I don't believe is because uh, America in the civil sphere had uh, Christian principles and Christian thinking and Christian legislation. I think it's because in the spiritual sphere, uh, this, the ecclesiastical sphere, I should say, the church sphere, we had, um, well, we had the, mon the reigning mantra of doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. And so let's, let's uh, just whittle everything down in, in our churches to the lowest common denominator. Let's have like five, you know, five doctrines that we'll defend, you know, we'll die on that hill. The virgin birth, which I'll die on that hill. Yes and amen. A bodily resurrection. Yes and amen. Like, um, but then everything else was let go and it became this Billy Graham kind of, you know, just everything was just about personal evangelism. Everybody's doctrine was, you know, uh, an inch deep, right? So we had Christianity that was a mile wide, but an inch deep. Uh, that was not because of a Christian state. That was because of a compromised church. So again, the question is, do we get a state church? No, you don't. Um, now you might at, at uh, the literal state level, like, like not the civil church, a federal church. No, you don't get that at the national level. You might, Texas could possibly have a church. I think that that would be permitted. I don't think it's ideal. Uh, but I think that, that right now, as it stands, I think that that would be uh, legally permitted that Texas or New Hampshire or whatever, uh, that they could have a state church. But, uh, you know, to use another Wilson-ism, uh, he says, you know, if you have conflicting uh, at the federal and state level, if you have conflicting birds, right, you got a, you got a national bird, the bald eagle, and in Texas, you know, we've got the mockingbird as our state bird. Well, people don't pick up arms and go to war over, you know, um, eagle versus mockingbird, um, but they will um, possibly, at least there's a much higher potential that there would be conflict and friction and war over um, churches, denominations, confessions of faith, right? That at, at the federal level, if it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, but then the state of Texas is the 1689, and at the federal level, they're starting to try to push on uh, citizens, you know, in Texas that we have to baptize our infants, well then, yeah, you're going to have a problem. So that's why I'm advocating at the national level, federal level, that it's not confessional, denominational is what I'm saying there, but it is creedal. Um, but we're adding the five solas because it needs to be the gospel. If you want to look at the most prosperous places in the world, the most prosperous places in the world, you don't track white skin, you track the Reformation. That's what you track. You don't track Rome either. You don't track the Catholic Church. You track the Protestant Reformation. Where the gospel of free grace goes, it creates free men. It sometimes takes a while. It sometimes takes a while to set the captive free. But the slave is eventually made our brother. And that's because of the Protestant Reformation. That's because of the gospel of free grace that naturally and logically lends towards free men. And free men build free markets that cause the whole world to prosper. So yes, it's going to be a Protestant movement, 
but not any particular denomination. So no, you don't get a state church at the national level, federal level. You might have literal state churches like Texas, speaking of states in that sense, Texas or Oklahoma or Tennessee. Uh, even then, personally, if you're asking my opinion, James, I would say that uh, I'm not a fan of that, um, that there would not be a particular uh particular denomination, even at the state level, certainly not at the national level. It's a pan-Protestant movement, creeds, and the five solas. Um, in terms of a Christian prince, do you get a Christian prince? I think you, you, you get Christian princes. No, you're not going to have a Christian prince because we don't have a monarchy in America, and I don't think that we have to have a monarchy to be biblically faithful. Uh, to be fair, though, and this is another thing that boomers will lose their minds with, um, but to be fair, I think if if a theology truly is biblical, if it's actually accurate, biblical, um, then, then it will work in different places and different times beyond just the United States of America in 2023. So England, for instance, I know that it doesn't really function like a true monarchy, uh, you know, with parliament and all these different things, but... Um, I think that you could have their form of government, and it could, and, and that could be that could be done in a faithful biblical Christian way, or you could have our form of government, and it could be done in a faithful Christian biblical way. So um, our sacred democracy, um, I don't believe, is biblical. Uh, if you're trying to defend democracy from the Bible, you're going to have a hard time, um, right? You're going to come up with all these examples of Saul saying, the people made me do it, or Aaron who makes a golden calf, the people made me do it, or this, you know, the people made me do it, the people made me do it. 50% um, of the population plus one can be wrong. Shocker, I know. Um, but the majority can be wrong. The majority can be wrong. And so, yes, we do want checks and balances. We want accountability. I like that. Um, but... Our nation is not a raw democracy, praise, praise God. We're a constitutional republic. Uh, and yes, we have democratic votes uh, for elected officials, uh, but there are checks and balances. It's not a raw democracy, and that is by design. I mean, even the founders did not speak uh, that highly of democracy. The, the founders and the way that they spoke of democracy looks nothing like the way that the modern progressive liberal Democrat speaks of demo democracy today. So um, all that being said, uh, you would have many Christian princes. You'd have a Christian prince on city council and a mayor and a governor and this and that, congressman and senate and, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, so you're going to have not a Christian prince, but Christian princes and a Christian pope. No way. Uh, C point A, pan-Protestant movement. You're not going to have a, a, a Protestant pope um, at a national level or even a state level because you're also not going to have uh, confessions in a particular, you know, state church. You're not going to have a state church, therefore you're not going to have a state uh, pope. Um, one other thing to say on that uh, that level is there's a dynamic difference. I've said this a million times. Guys don't get it, so I'll just keep saying it, and maybe eventually somebody will understand. Um, there's a dynamic difference between an ecclesiocracy and a theocracy. So my position, James, is that theocracy is um, inescapable. It's not whether but which. Uh, that that every government, every culture, every nation. Um, is going to have a God above it. So I um, am completely against the separation of Christ and state. I am absolutely for a separation of church and state. So I would fall in line with Abraham Kuyper and sphere sovereignty, those kinds of... So I see the church and the state as two distinct spheres. And they're supposed to, the, the church, the state, and the home, families, the, these function just like we have three branches in our civil government. Well, even outside of our civil government, civil government as a whole 
you could view as one entity. And then there's the church, um, you know, which would be a collection, not with the Pope sitting on, on top, you know, in charge of everybody, but a collection of Christians in various pro Protestant denominations and local churches adhering to, you know, these universal, you know, historic creeds and then the five solas. But you've got the church over here, you've got the state over here, and you have households on the other end. And so just like we have three branches within the civil government, you also can pan out even further, like a 30,000 foot view, and see uh, that you also have state, church, and home holding one another accountable. Now, if any of these get too big, right, we're, we're very aware right now because of our, our current moment, cultural moment in America, we're very aware of the danger of tyranny at the state level. Um, but um, statism or Caesarism or whatever you want to call it, um, totalitarianism in the civil realm is not the only possibility. You can have tyranny uh, with the state, you can have the tyranny, uh, tyranny with the church, and you can have tyranny with the, the home with the family. Um, tyranny with the church, well, what's an example of that? What do you call that? Well, you, you call that Rome. You call that indulgences. You call that um, the incubator that, that ultimately gave way to the Protestant Reformation and Luther uh, because you had a tyrannical uh, church. That's part of the reason why Luther partnered so much with the state in his day because uh, Luther, the, the Leviathan of his day, was not the state uh, so much as it was the Pope. It wasn't a prince, it was a Pope, it was the church. Um, and so he partnered with the state in a, in a lot of ways that I wouldn't be comfortable um, at this point. So um, we're all products of our time. So right now we think, well, the only entity that could ever be tyrannical that even has the possibility would be, you know, uh, the state. But a church can be a tyrant, see Rome. And a family can be a tyrant. What's an example of a family being uh, tyrannical and overpowering both the church and the state? Well, you call that a mafia. And that has happened. Uh, that's happened in New York, in our country, uh, not that long ago, where, you know, the police were a joke. And at the end of the day, the people who really had the power were certain patriarchs, certain uh, family names, right? They're the ones who were feared, not the state, not the church, uh, but the family. So they can all be tyrannical. So all that being said, no state church, certainly not at the federal level. If I have my way, not at, even at a state level, Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma. Um, and therefore, there would be uh, no Protestant pope. Um, and in terms of a Christian prince, singular, no, uh, because that's not the form of government that we have. Neither do I think it should be the form of government. I mean, total depravity is kind of the heartbeat of the American experiment, that we need checks and balances. We need to disperse uh, power uh, because people... Uh, do terrible things, right? That, that uh, power, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. So I would hold to uh, the form of government that we have. I think that that, that can be done in a Christian way. Uh, therefore, you would have Christian princes, but not a Christian prince. All right, so we'll pick up with question three here in just a moment. Question three, just to whet your appetite, is this. Do we get a three-letter agency enforcing religious laws, right? Like the CIA or FBI, are you going to have some Christian version of the FBI, do we get a three-letter agency enforcing religious law? Great question. I'll get back to it in just one second, but uh, one last word from our final sponsor of the day. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates once again, many of you are probably asking, when does this madness stop? If you're interested in learning how to establish a family banking system outside of today's mainstream banking insanity, then schedule a call with our sponsors at Private Family Banking. 
There's a way for individuals, families, and businesses to put their hard-earned money to work continuously accruing compounding interest and then have those resources available as collateral for cash or for financing investments, businesses, college, and other major life expenditures without having to go to the big banks for loans. Income tax protected? safety from stock market losses, guaranteed rates of compounding interest, and the ability to store up an inheritance for your children's children and avoid the death tax on your estate. If this interests you, then email our friends at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Or you can give them a call at 830-339-9472. Again, that's 830-339-9472. Schedule your appointment today. All right, so here's the third question from James James Lindsay. He's asked this, uh, do we get a three-letter agency enforcing religious law? Here's my short answer, no. No police state, you will have far more freedom. That's a short answer, I'll flesh it out now. Um, this will blow a lot of Americans' minds uh, because Americans aren't that free, not like we used to be. And so um, a lot of Americans have no idea how freeing uh, God's law actually is. The book of James says that the law of God is the law of liberty. It's the law of liberty, a law of freedom. Uh, we have so many, uh, so much taxation, so many regulations, so many hoops that we have to jump through today uh, that, you know, the founders of our nation, uh, they're rolling over in their graves. Um, now, at a basic level, just speaking, you know, in, in terms of principles, um, biblical law is um, it's, it's not um, policing, it's penalizing, punishing. There's a difference between a police state versus a state that punishes uh, actual crimes. In Israel, uh, you did not have some large police force going into people's homes and, you know, lying in wait to try to catch someone in the act. Um, so I believe that in a pan-Protestant Christendom 2.0, Christian nationalism here in America, God willing, uh, what I would advocate for, what I believe is Christian in that regard, is that you would actually have a trimmed down police force uh, that would primarily be uh, for emergencies. So you would still have you know, firemen and you would have ambulances and paramedics and you would have police officers because um, if someone breaks into your home uh, and you, know, you need defense, right? you're going to pick up the phone and there needs to be someone that you could call. But that's different than policemen just walking around looking for, for trouble, looking for a crime, looking for something that hasn't taken place yet, but you know, thinking maybe it will. Um, so you would have police at, at an emergency level uh, but primarily, it would not be um, policing, it would be simply punishing. Um, one of the reasons why crime is rampant in our nation, um, right now, you know, so, so everybody, you know, Democrats, they're reversing on this because they realize it's not a, a good leg to stand on in terms of, of their chances of being reelected. But it wasn't that long ago, just, a, you know, a year, two years ago, that Democrats were saying defund the police. And, you know, now they've done a complete about, you know, uh, about face where they're saying, I, I didn't say defund the police. We need to fund the police. Well, what you really need to do, what you really need to do is, is crack down on crime. 
Um, when someone commits a crime, they should be punished with biblical justice, not social justice. And on this point, I think that you know James and I, at least you know, at some level, would agree. Uh, social justice is uh, the antithesis to biblical justice. Um, biblical justice is a reason why Lady Justice, you know, she's holding a sword, she's holding scales, right, in her hand, and she's also blindfolded. Um, these are the components, the key characteristics of biblical justice. Biblical justice, first, it's blind. It shows no partiality to the rich. It also doesn't show partiality to the poor. That's what social justice did, is it just said, hey, we're going we're gonna to show partiality to the poor, and that's okay. No, it's not okay. You don't show partiality to anyone. You, you don't show partiality to someone because they're rich. You also, it is, the, the Bible literally says, you shall not pity the poor. You shall not show partiality to the poor. So you don't show partiality either way, right? If some um, police, you know, shooting takes place and you have to figure out what skin pigment the police officer has and what, you know, skin pigment um, the civilian has before you can de determine um, what is just, uh, then you're not doing justice. You're doing the opposite of justice. You're showing partiality. So biblical justice is impartial. Social justice is partial. Uh, biblical justice is also swift. It's swift. It's not delayed. Uh, you don't put someone on death row for years and years and years. It's not so swift that you can't um, actually uh, hold trial. You're going to hold trial and you're going to do all these things and make sure that, um, that the person uh, that's going to be punished for the crime, in fact, did that crime, right? So you'd still have the standards of, you know, beyond a shadow of doubt. And that's a Christian principle as well. Why? Because we believe that uh, this life is not the only, there's a higher court. This life is not the only opportunity that we have in order to seek justice. That, that at the end of the day, no one gets away with murder. If they get away with murder here, they won't get away with murder before God. They're going to have to stand one day before a just and holy God, and all the inward intentions of their hearts and thoughts will be laid bare before Him, as the Scripture says. Uh, they won't get away with anything, not one crime, not one sin, not one sinful thought even. And so because God is just, and everyone eventually comes to justice in one of two ways, either they themselves paying the price, paying the penalty under the white-hot wrath of God eternally in hell, or Jesus having paid for that on their behalf, on Calvary, on the cross, and receiving his righteousness uh, by grace through faith alone, either way, um, ultimately justice uh, will be had. God gets justice. That's why, at the end of the day, we would, uh, we would rather see, in our, in our justice system, we would rather see uh, 10 um, actual murderers go free, go through trial and get off because we didn't have enough evidence to actually charge them. Um, we'd rather see 10 guys get away with murder than wrongfully um, putting to death capital punishment, which is biblical, um, one innocent man who actually didn't commit murder. And that's the way our justice system is uh, designed, and that comes from a, a biblical principle. And so I think that's right. Uh, but we've gone beyond that, beyond just, you know, well, we want to give the benefit of the doubt. You know, a person is innocent until proven guilty. All those are good things. But we've gone far beyond that to where um, people actually get away with murder. Uh, where, you know, where certain crimes are just not penalized. Uh, we're, we're soft on crime. We're soft on crime. So um, all that being said, uh, the way to deter crime, uh, the Bible literally says, if justice is delayed, then the people will rebel. So one of the ways to uh, deter, um, you can't change the heart through law. 
Uh, only the gospel of Jesus Christ does that. But what the law can do is it can deter, restrain outward manifestations of evil. Good biblical law restrains outward manifestations of evil. And it's not just having good biblical laws, but actually enforcing them and actually having just penalties when these laws are broken. Um, and those penalties need to be not delayed, uh, but they need to be swift. So biblical justice is impartial, right? Lady Justice is blindfolded. Um, it's also proportional. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, right? So um, if, if somebody breaks my arm, they don't get the death penalty. That's not proportional. They also don't get a slap on the wrist. That's not proportional. So it's impartial. Lady Justice is blind. Biblical Justice is blind. Um, but it's also proportional. It's also swift. It's swift. It's not delayed. Uh, and so I believe that if we did that, and we did those things publicly, so I, I would say that capital punishment is biblical. Uh, not everything in Scripture is you know, meriting of capital punishment. Um, I would agree with Dr. Joseph Boot and other general equity theonomists who have said uh, that it is only with murder uh, that capital punishment is mandated, that it's a must, uh, that if you do anything less than capital punishment, life for life, then you're actually breaking the law of God, you're sinning. Um, so in the case of murder, if you take someone's life, then you forfeit your own, um, and, and that's mandated. In other instances, as we see in, in Old Testament law, um, I believe that the death penalty is something that may occur. It's permissible, um, but it is not mandated. It would be a maximum penalty, right? So in the state of Texas, you know, you, you'll see from time to time a sign that says, you know, if you litter, you're going to get, you know, up to two years in jail or a $5,000 fine, or it might be five years in jail, a $2,000 fine. Um, well, I, I don't know anybody right now in the state of Texas doing hard time um, for throwing, you know, a Coke bottle out their car window, right? It's, it's on the books. It's, it's possible. It's permissible. Uh, but it's a maximum penalty, not the only penalty. And so I think that at some level, like there's going to be variations, like the law that recently was passed, uh, you know, with Uganda, right? That everybody's losing their minds over. Uh, sadly, a lot of, a lot of Christians, um, many of them Christians in name only. They're actually just progressive liberals pretending to be Christians. Uh, but they're saying, this is disgusting. I can't believe this. Well, I mean, if you actually look at the law, um, the death penalty comes in uh, not just for uh, two adult males who have a private uh, gay uh, relationship. No, it's, it's because of rape or child molestation. Um, it's it literally says aggravated homosexuality and then defines what is aggravated, you know, aggressive homosexuality. What does that look like? It looks like rape. It looks like child molestation. Um, in those cases, I would say, yeah, the death penalty is um, absolutely an appropriate punishment. So all that being said, um, you know, this third question again is, you know, do we get three letter agencies enforcing religious law? No, you actually have far less policing in a Christian state than you do in our current godless state. The reason why we have so much policing um, is because uh, criminals are not deterred in committing crime because they know at the end of the day they're going to have light penalties. Um, but if you take someone who actually does commit a capital offense like murder and you publicly hang them outside the courthouse, and that doesn't mean that, that there's no law that says every person, every resident in the town has to attend there'll be people who say, oh, we're not going to go and watch that. 
We don't want our kids to see that. Um, I get that. I, I wouldn't want my kids to see it. But it's available. That not just the family that's bereaved of a loved one, but, uh, but the whole public. Right? This is a crime against, uh, against the, the, the public, um, and, and at least at some level. And so there's a public hanging, and it's not 10 years down the line. Um, there's due justice done, but if it's you know, uh, beyond a shadow of, of a doubt, uh, found through a fair trial that this person actually uh, committed murder, then they're going to be publicly hung, and that's going to happen in a matter of weeks or months, not years or decades, then uh, less people murder. The same with other crimes. So um, it would be more punishing just punishments, not, not overly severe, not inhumane. Uh, that's another thing. Uh, in biblical law, there's no such thing as torture. No such thing as torture. Um, Christians, the, the, the Christian doctrine in regards to torture is that torture um, is against the law of God, that it is immoral. Uh, because ultimately what it does is it seeks to exact more, uh, more justice than we are allowed to. Um, that is something that only God ultimately can do. Uh, when it comes to a capital offense like murder, um, even that, you, you know, the whole goal is restitution, right? So if somebody steals, you don't put them in jail, right? That, I mean, think of the, the logic, right? So this person stole from one person and the way we're going to handle it is we're going to now, we're going to steal from everybody by putting them in jail on tax, uh, the taxpayer's expense. Uh, you want to talk about dignity and in what's humane and the, prisons are, are not humane. There would be holding cells as people are awaiting trial and those kinds of things. Um, but you're looking at, at less police. You're looking at far less prisons. Um, you're looking at, if it comes to assault and certain crimes like that, you're looking at uh, the person being uh, not tortured, uh, but beaten by rods. And I know what you're thinking, beaten by rods. Oh my gosh, I can't believe these Christian nationalists are so extreme. Um, no, putting a grown man and treating him like I have a, my daughter has a pet tortoise and that tortoise, uh, we give the tortoise, uh, food and water and it's in a cage and every now and then we let it outside, um, treating a, a human being created in the image of God, like a pet. That's what steals dignity. That's inhumane. Taking a man and saying, uh, instead of putting you in prison to rehabilitate, which never happens. Uh, you can look at the statistics. People who go to jail become worse. They actually have higher statistical chance after serving hard time of doing crime um, again because it's not rehabilitating. You're taking one crim criminal and surrounding them with a bunch of other criminals. Um, it's not uh, bad company corrupts good morals. It's, it's not helpful. And so treating him like a human being, like a man and not an animal and saying, you did something wrong and we're going to punish you and it's going to hurt, but we're not, it's not Sharia law, right? Which chops off a, a man's hand, you know, where certain uh, laws in India that, that used to be on the books, uh, where now he actually can't make restitution, right? You don't take the thief and say, because you stole instead of working, we're going to ensure that you always have to steal and can never work again by chopping off your hand that you need to work with, right? That, I mean, it's just insane. Biblical law doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for torture. It doesn't allow for chopping off somebody's hand. Uh, and it also doesn't allow for treating people like a pet tortoise and putting them in a cage and giving them a little bit of food and letting them have one hour a day of, of walking outside or whatever and being around a bunch of other criminals where their, their, their morals are further corrupted. Um, that's, that's not biblical law. So if it's theft, it's double restitution. If they can't make double restitution, 
right? They, because all they have is what they stole and they don't have anything else. Uh, then it looks like that's, I mean, that's the kind of biblical slavery that I would advocate for. That's not race-based. It's not lifelong. It's not inhumane. Uh, but yeah, that, that person is now going to have to work. They're going to give back what they stole, but they need to make double restitution. Um, and so that means that their wages are going to be garnished, a percentage of their wages for the next, you know, such and such number of years. And in a sense, they are at least in a sense, temporarily a slave of the one that they stole from in order to make restitution. And if it's, you know, some kind of, you know, aggravated assault or something like that, it's beaten by rods. If it's um, a capital offense, murder, then it's for sure the death penalty. Um, that's the way, that's the way it goes. Um, so in terms of a three letter agency, you know, uh, breaking down the door of some Muslim family and going in their home to see if they're worshiping Allah, you know, and then dragging them out, kicking and screaming. No, that, 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 that may be, um, the, the boogeyman Christian nationalist that, you know, that lives under your bed, James Lindsay. Um, but no, there's no serious, uh, Christian nationalist. I, I don't know anybody advocating for that. I said serious. I don't even need to qualify it. I don't know anybody, anybody who would claim to be a Christian nationalist uh, talking about going into people's private homes with three-letter agencies, spying on people, surveillance with people. Um, now, that's the beauty of biblical law. You would be so free, you wouldn't even know what to do with the freedom. Because right now, you have so little freedom as an American in our totalitarian, secular, progressive, pagan state that you don't you don't even know what freedom actually is. So um, next question. This is number four. It has been said that atheism will not be tolerated and will be stamped out. How is that going to be accomplished? All right. So I'm going to be forthright with you. Um, will atheism be stamped out in Christian nationalism? If God is gracious and merciful and we are able to restore Christendom 2.0, will atheism be stamped out? Yes, by God's grace, it'll be stamped out. You better believe it. Will atheists be stamped out? No, but atheism will. How is your follow-up? How are you going to accomplish this? Uh, well, one of the ways that you accomplish it is you don't have public schools. You do not have state-run schools. And you certainly don't have God, a godless state-run school, which is what we currently have. So the way that you stamp out atheism is you don't have teachers unions uh, with a bunch of blue-haired feminists who hate God and hate children, I might add, who are state employees paid by tax dollars teaching in public schools and teaching children that they came from fish instead of being created in the image of God. You don't have that. What you have is private schools. Education is privatized. Uh, the state actually does what God ordained the state to do, which is to punish bad guys and praise good guys. And that's it. Punish bad guys and praise good guys. And you stop. So you have less taxes because you have a smaller government. And then when it comes to school, well, people are paying a lot less in taxes and they can afford to homeschool. They can afford to send their kids to a private Christian school. And those children are taught in those schools truth. So what, what doesn't happen in a Christian nation that I'm advocating for is you don't have state schools. And even in the private sector, all education would be privatized. Even in private schools, um, you are not permitted 
under law, you are not permitted to lie to children. You're not allowed to tell children that it's simply the survival of the fittest and that they came from fish. You're not allowed to lie to kids. So atheism would be stamped out because we would stop lying to kids. Would there still be some atheist? Sure. Uh, would, would Darwinism be taught? Um, yeah, it, it would be taught perhaps on a field trip, right? For, for a week or two in classes. Uh, you go on a field trip and you, you know, go to some Darwinian you know, museum and, uh, and, and the teacher says, look at this. This is what people used to think when we had a secular nation you know, before God was merciful and sent revival. Isn't that funny? And all the kids, we'd laugh together and have a great time. We'd laugh about how stupid atheism is. And so everybody would chuckle and everybody would laugh and they'd take pictures, you know, next to a statue of Darwin, you know, and, and they'd put captions that said, me next to the dumbest person to ever live, you know, and, and, it, and it'd be a great time. The kids would have a blast um, and they would still learn about Darwinism at some level, but they would not be taught Darwinism as though it is a gospel truth. The reason why atheism is pre uh, prevalent is because it's being taught to little kids as though it is a gospel truth, as though it is irrefutable. So that's how it would be stamped out. Again, C point A, right? So my answer to your third question, there's no three-letter agency. There's not this big nanny state, police state, uh, you know, in the same way that we're not rounding up Muslims in their private homes, you're also not rounding up atheists. So atheism is not stamped out by stamping out atheists, but atheism as a godless, false ideology, which it is, the ideology is stamped out. And the way that it's stamped out is the first step is simply getting education away from the state and back to families. Education belongs not to Caesar, but to fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. This is Ephesians 6, 4, but rather train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, familial fathers are responsible for the provision of their children. That means food, that means clothing, that means shelter. It also means training and education. So that can happen through homeschool or it can happen through fathers taking on the burden, the responsibility of training their children or training and teaching and discipling their wives so that the wife can homeschool or um, overseeing their education, choosing which Christian school to put them in, which teachers are going to have, and working extra hard out of the home to pay for it. And so the first step is you get education away from the state and back to the home. And the second step is uh, that you no longer teach children, you no longer lie to children and tell them that they came from fish. Um, instead, uh, what you do is you teach children God's truth. You teach them about creation. You teach them about what the Bible says. And that would fall underneath this pan-Protestant, big tent. Um, th that, that would fall within a creedal uh, paradigm, not, not confessional, not particular to Presbyterians or Baptists, but a Christian, creedal, pan-Protestant. Catholics would agree even with this. It'd be on just Protestants. Um, <laughs> Jews would agree with this. Um, so like, you would teach them about creation. You would say, this is the truth about where you came from. This is what God says. And over the course of history, during some of our darker moments, when we rebelled against God, this is what some people said was the origin story of man. Isn't that silly? Golly, that's really silly, teacher. Sure is, Sally. Sure is, Jimmy. 
let's laugh for a moment. Okay, regain your composure, kids. I know it's silly, but we got to move on with the lesson. We can't laugh at atheism all day long. We got to, you know, move on to math. That's how it would be stamped out. So yes, atheism would be stamped out. Not atheist, but atheism. And primarily at the level of education, get it away from the state and make education Christian, which another way of saying that, James, is make education true. Don't lie to kids. Okay. Number five, do you believe in the First Amendment, all of it? Good question. Do you believe in the First Amendment, all of it? My answer is yes. Now, I think we need to get back to authorial intent. So I think yes, uh, that the state should not show uh, preference or favoritism uh, to any um, particular religion. Now, I don't think that the founders had in mind um, principled pluralism, a.k.a. polytheism, um, a.k.a. worshiping false gods. Uh, you can find in some of uh, early documents by founders where it talks about um, you know, uh, religions of our common, our one common Lord. So um, the First Amendment and my assessment is fine. I wouldn't be advocating for changing, not one change to the Constitution, not one. I'll say that again. I'm being really clear. My answer is here. Not one revision to the Constitution, um, even with uh, the amendments to the Constitution. Uh, the First Amendment, I'm fine with it. I think it can stay as is, but I think it needs to be understood in terms of interpretation and authorial intent that there is no favoring of one particular religion of our common Lord. That is, um, back to my answer to your very first question. Um, you're not showing preference to Baptists. You're not showing preference to Presbyterians. But yes, you are showing preference to the Christian faith. Uh, because it's true. Yes, the Christian faith would be defended. Not, not necessarily its doctrine. But there would be certain um, privileges that, that Christian churches, for instance, would, would be able to um, benefit from that, that Muslims would not. So are you rounding up Muslims in, in their homes, in their private residence? No. Um, but uh, does uh, Islam get certain tax benefits and write-offs um, for, for at, a, at an entity, not just individual people, but uh, for a mosque or something? No, of course not. No. Um, and that begs the question even, well, you know, could you even erect a mosque? Um, there's some debate within Christian nationalist circles about that. Guys have different opinions. I would be of the opinion uh, that no, um, you would not be able at a public level to have mosques. I'm open to maybe, maybe you could, not with tax benefits, um, not with tax write-offs and those kinds of things. They're paying property taxes, the whole nine yards. Um, I'm open to maybe there could be a mosque, but certainly there would not be as we have right now. I forget which city, maybe Minneapolis, I think is what it is, but um public citywide um, calls to prayer, Islamic prayer, no way. Could you have church bells in the city that's heard by everyone, including the Muslims and the atheists? Uh-huh, yep, you could have those uh, because the Christian church is true. Could you have uh, Muslim sirens that everybody hears? No, you could not. So no, it's not equal. So yes, there would be preference to the Christian faith, but I don't believe that that's against the First Amendment. Um, so my answer to your question, do you believe in the First Amendment? Yes. All of it? Yes. But I believe that it needs to be interpreted uh, the way that it was intended. Um, I don't believe that the American uh, plan, the, the plan for the American project 
was to have a polytheistic idol worshiping nation. I think it was to get away from some of the tyranny in England with particular denominations that were infringing over the rights of Christians in another denomination. And they wanted to make sure that that didn't happen anymore. They wanted to make sure that William Laud and High Church and you know certain branches of Anglicanism and this and that couldn't um, tyrannize the Baptist or tyrannize the Presbyterians or the Congregationalists. I think that that's what the First Amendment is addressing. So that's my position on, I guess that's question number five. Number six, do gays deserve uh, tolerance? Let me see real quick. Oh, oh, back to number five. Here's one thing. So no amendment to the Constitution, uh, no, no revision to the Constitution. The first 10 amendments are great. Many of the later amendments are great. Also equal uh, protection. Um, the 14th Amendment is good. Um, there's no race-based slavery. Slavery is bad. Um, well, I guess I'll get to it later. The 19th Amendment, right? That was one of your questions. Can women vote? So I'll get that, to that in a minute. Um, but just let the record state for now. Uh, first 10 men, amendments are good. Most of you know uh, the amendments after the first 10 are good, the vast majority. Um, the Constitution itself is great. Uh, one other thing that I would do, though, is the First Amendment. Um, you would just want to interpret that rightly. Um, and maybe um, I think that it would be um, I think it would be prudent to adopt a distinctly Christian preamble to the Constitution. Um, so at that level, like Zambia, um, so you know, a distinctly Christian preamble that, again, is um, creedal, not confessional, pan-Protestant with the five solas, defending the free gospel of grace that creates free men, that create free markets, um, that prosper the, war, the world. So, uh, number six, do gays deserve tolerance? If not, uh, would you want to execute gays? All right, so I've kind of already addressed this with the police state. Um, so, it depends what you mean by tolerance. Um, do individual uh, gay people who are living a gay lifestyle privately, um, do they deserve tolerance? Yeah, I think they do. Uh, it's a sin, but there's a distinction between sins and crimes. Um, so not, not all crimes are sin uh, when people have bad laws, for instance, that go against God's law. And likewise, not all sins are crimes. You don't have the coveting police. You don't have the thought police. Right? You can sin in your thoughts, but sinful thoughts are not crimes. Um, and so two gay guys in private, uh, would there be a certain degree of tolerance for them? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, would there be tolerance for public displays of sodomy, of, of uh, same-sex um, relationships? No. Would there be tolerance for uh, public displays and celebration like gay pride? Uh, absolutely not. Of course not. So would there be, you know, would June be Pride Month? No. If you tried to hold a Pride event, um, you would be penalized. There would be strict penalties. Uh, you would incur fines. Um, you would, uh, yeah, you, you would be forced to, to tear down your sodomy set and go home. You would not be permitted to have a gay parade. You would not be able uh, to, to do that. Absolutely not. Um, no, because we love people. We love God and we love people. And uh, the homo jihad is destroying people. It's destroying the fabric of our nation. It's destroyed um, our culture. Uh, it is a net negative. Every way you slice it. And so, no, 
Um, and that's not just the T and the Q and the A and the I and the plus, by the way, um, but that's the L, the G, and the B. Um, it's the whole, the whole shebang. So uh, there's a difference, distinction between sins and crimes. And so, you know, in terms of drawing the distinction, rule of thumb, right? Rule of thumb is um, one clear way of distinguishing between sins and crimes is the difference between private and public. Private and public. Um, in terms of executing gays, well, I feel like I've already answered that question earlier, talking about um, that, you know, life for a life, capital punishment is uh, required by biblical law with a capital offense, murder. It is... Um, it is a maximum penalty. It's permissible uh, for something such as a man lying with another lamb, uh, a man lying with another man. Uh, but it's uh, it's not mandated, but it is permissible. Um, again, if that's done privately, you don't have a police state, so you just you you wouldn't know about it. You're not going and trying to round up the gays. But if somebody's throwing a parade, there's going to be strict penalties, um, and that will not be permitted to happen. And there would be something to be said for there being more severe degrees of penalties for repeat offenders. So if you have, you know, some activist who again and again and again is caught trying to lead some sort of sodomy rally in the public square and influencing the public that this is a good idea and this lends towards human flourishing, right? The thing that doesn't even, you know, work with... with procreation and, and, and reproduction is, is somehow positive for the, you know, the benefit of humanity. And, and they're trying to influence people and hold public rallies and public events. And, and they're a repeat offender, then yeah, eventually that, that could be cracked down on really hard. But, but the, the general sense of just anybody who's not straight is going to get the death penalty. No, that's the Christian nationalist boogeyman under your bed. Again, got to watch out for that uh, Christian nationalist boogeyman under the bed. Um, so no police state. Uh, the closet, here's another thing that I wrote. Um, the closet would be a safe space, but it needs to be the closet. So let, let me just say this. The closet is good. Tim Bailey wrote a book a few years ago called The Grace of Shame. The Grace of Shame. It's not whether but which. Every society, every culture uh, will have certain things uh, that are shameful and certain things that are celebrated and esteemed based off of what that culture, what that society, what they deem as being a virtue or a vice. Um, and so I'm arguing from the scripture as a Christian that it is a net positive for all of human society um, for there to be an intrinsic shame attached to LGBTQ plus LMNOP, whatever. That is shameful. It's supposed to be shameful. You're always going to be ashamed of something. Right now, as our nation is rebelling against God and committing apostasy, um, it's not that uh, shame is going away. Shame is just shifting. The, 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 the scope of shame has shifted from from sodomy to Christianity. Those who believe simply what the Bible teaches are now being made to feel ashamed. So you're always going to have shame. For the record, the gospel of Jesus Christ do, does not produce a shame-free zone. 
It doesn't. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it, it's when God came to them after they had sinned, when God came, they heard him walking through the garden. The Bible doesn't say when God came on the scene, their shame dissipated. No, no. When God came on the scene, when the presence of God came um, uh, came to where Adam and Eve were, then they felt more shame and ran and hid. The presence of God intensified shame for sin. Shame for sin grows. It doesn't lessen. It increases when God is near. But what the gospel does is it doesn't create a shame-free zone. It doesn't say that sinners shouldn't feel shame. What the gospel does is, is it deals with shame. The presence of God initially increases a sense of shame. We call that conviction. But then what God does is he heals and covers our shame. So when God comes walking in the garden asking, Adam, where are you? They, they run and hide when they hear his footsteps. They feel more ashamed with the presence of God, not less. But the beauty is that what God does is by blood, the killing of an animal pointing towards Christ, the Lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of the world, God through blood, he doesn't say, oh, Adam, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Instead, he says, you should be ashamed. This is shameful, but I'm going to cover your shame. And by blood atonement and the killing of an animal and taking its skin, he makes clothing for Adam and Eve and he covers their nakedness, covers their shame. So every culture is going to have shame. It's not whether but which. It's inescapable. Just like what I was saying earlier, theocracy is inescapable. Every nation is going to have a God. Just which God are you going to have? Ecclesiocracy, not for that. Ecclesiocracy, a church-run state, no. Separation of church and state is good, right? Uh, Judah was given the scepter and, and, uh, and Levi was given uh, the priesthood. So even when Jacob is blessing his sons, there's a division of, of church and state. Uh, Levi's given the priesthood, Judah's given the scepter. So separation of church and state, good. No ecclesiocracy, no, no church-run state. Separation of, of Christ and state, bad. Why? Because it's not whether but which. Theocracy is inescapable. There will always be a God above the state, or if there's not, then the state is God. Statism is the religion. Uh, people are, are inevitably religious. So, uh, same principle, not whether but which. Um, in the same way, shame is inescapable. And... And the Christian faith does not create a shame-free zone, uh, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually have shame for those things that are actually shameful, things that God says are sin. You have shame actually intensified, not lessened, but intensified, that causes people to run to the cross of Jesus Christ for their shame, not to be told that they have nothing to be shamed about, but for their shame to be dealt with and covered and atoned for by the blood of Jesus. So, um, again, we'll... Will sodomites be executed? No. Um, a rapist would. Groomers would. And a repeat offender at the public level, not sin, private, but crime, public, repeat offender trying to indoctrinate people and hold a bunch of pride events, um, it may eventually elevate to that level, but there would be multiple other opportunities with lesser penalties prescribed at first, but the at the bottom level, just the individual two guys who are gay, um, no, we're not rounding up the gays. It's not a police state, but they would stay in the closet um, because someone, shame, right? It's not whether but which. Shame is inescapable. So in that vein, I would say the closet is inescapable. And, 
you're either going to have Christians in the closet or you're going to have the gays in the closet. And for the glory of God and the good of his image-bearing creatures, um, we should have gays in the closet and not Christians because it's true and it's better. brings glory to God and it's better for God's people and for all people. All people. So it would be not tolerated in, in, uh, in, in every regard. It would be deemed as shameful. Um, but there's, there's, there's a, a wide spectrum from complete toleration and celebration of LGBT, you know, homo jihad versus every single same-sex attracted person is rounded up by some three-letter Christian agency and, and given capital punishment. Again, that's the Christian nationalist boogeyman who lives under your bed uh, but doesn't actually exist. Okay, so let's keep going. Number seven now. Uh, we've got three more. Number seven, do you prefer to live in a community of mainly only white people? Do you believe black people can be uh, integrated successfully into the American population and form a cohesive and peaceful nation? All right, here's the short answer that I wrote, and then I'll flesh it out. Um, I prefer to live with Christian Americans. Skin pigmentation is of no account. Many black people in America... Uh, can trace their lineage as Americans further back than I can. Illegal immigration, however, would be stopped and legal immigration would be significantly mitigated. That's my answer. So I'm assuming this question is coming from a poor reading of Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Um, but yeah, I again, I just... I think I think it's um, I don't know I, I want to say it's a silly question, but I get how James would ask this question because there are there are some real racists. I don't I don't think Stephen Wolf is one of them, for the record. Uh, but there are some legitimate racists who are coming out of the woodwork and saying, "Yeah, Christian nationalism, white power," and you know. And then I'm like, "Well, no, wait a second. I like Christian nationalism. What was that? What was that last part that you said? <laughs> white power? No, that's not my team. That's no. Um, <laughs> it's funny that that black people are mentioned, um, right? With with every ethnicity, you know, that we have in America, that black people are mentioned." Um, Black people are, in many regards, the most American people in the nation. And if we're talking about just tracing back your lineage, not all black people. I mean, there can be first generation, you know, people from Nigeria who just moved here yesterday, right? But what I'm saying is those who descended from, from slaves in America, they can trace their lineage for, for since the founding of this country in a way that plenty of white people can't. Um, so, um, yes. Uh, black people are American and many black people by God's grace are also Christian. And so Christian nationalism and black people in America seems to work just fine. Um, but would you have a bunch of people crossing the border illegally? No, no, there would be strict penalties and punishments for that. And that would be stopped immediately, immediately. And even with legal immigration, would you allow for 2 million legal immigrants annually to come into the nation? No. No, you wouldn't. Um, one of the reasons why our nation is imploding is not because of black people. That's not the Christian nationalist argument, at least not, not the leaders within Christian. I'm sure there's some fringe people who are genuinely 
races. But it's, it's not because we have different ethnicities. It's because you have people who don't love Jesus and they don't love America. You have people, and most of them aren't black. Most of them are some, I don't know, well, plenty of them are white, and then some of them are Latino and you know, some Mexican and whatever. But you got a lot of people who are coming into the country illegally, and then you also have people coming in legally, but they're not, they're not coming because they love America. They're not going to fight in any of our wars to defend our freedom. This isn't their home. They don't love us. They're not willing to fight for us or die for us. And, and they don't love Jesus. They're not Christian. So, so no, we, you, in a Christian nation, in a Christian America, you would not allow for um, idolaters to flood the borders and come in and get to vote. No. Um, but that's not about skin pigment. They can be white idolaters or brown idolaters or black idolaters. Is it? No. The bottom line is um, that first we need... Uh, as a nation, we, we need to let the dust settle for a little while. Um, you, you can't, you, 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 we're just, it's not sustainable. It, it is not sustainable. It's another Doug Wilson-ism. Um, he said, you know, adoption is a wonderful, beautiful thing. It's a picture of the gospel. Um, the, if a family has three biological children and then they adopt one child or, or two child, children or even three children um, and provide for all the children, both adopted and biological, um, faithfully and lovingly and train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, then beautiful. But if a family has three biological children and they adopt 45 kids, well, that's not good for the three biological children or for the 45 adopted children. It's not sustainable. And so, yeah, we need to change something. But it's not because, you know, there's something inherent to ethnicity that white people are superior uh, or black people are superior. or No, it's not about color. It's not about pigment. And, and it's, it's not about that. It's about um, we need, a, a, in our nation, it, you can't sustain, you cannot survive without a commonality, a, a shared virtues, shared history. Um, we need, I need my grandkids 50 years from now, I need my grandkids um, and their neighbors to be able to look at each other and say, hey, both of our grandparents uh, fought in the same wars and had similar traditions. And that's what we, we had that in America. We had that. And so, yeah, I think we need to return to that. Not return to racism, not return to separate but equal and Jim Crow law. I'm not saying that, right? We, we, that's, that's a bug, not a feature. We want to work that out. There's, there would be no place for uh, sinful ethnic partiality in a Christian nation. There wouldn't. And so a Christian America would be red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in the sight. Jesus loves the little children. Um, there would be diversity in terms of skin pigment, but there would be a shared culture. We're Americans and we're Christians. We're Americans and we're Christians. And we came in legally and we also came in slowly. And so I, I think that for the next 20 years minimum, I would argue from 20 to 50 years, if we're going to right the ship in terms of immigration, uh, we would have to absolutely crack down on illegal immigration 
and we would have to severely mitigate uh, even legal immigration. And the people who are coming to America need to love America, not just that they hate the country they're leaving, but they need to love this country that they're coming to. And over time, through revival and preaching and God changing the hearts of the people, there would also be an embrace of, yeah, you need to love America and you need to love Jesus, right? You, uh, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Um, but if that happens in the mercy of God and the final score, for lack of a better word, is that the nation is 40% white people and 30% black people and, you know, and another 30% Latino, but they're love, they love America, they're here legally, um, they're not looking for a handout, they're looking for work and to contribute and they love Jesus, Pfft, great, love it, that's great. Um, all right, let me move on. Let's see, number eight. Since it's a small minority view, Christian nationalism, how will it be implemented? Will you win over the population? If so, how? Will it be forced? If so, how? And by whom? All right, uh, my short answer that I wrote here is uh, it would be top-down and bottom-up. I know you're not going to like that, James, but uh, it is both. And this is where I would differ with some guys wearing the Christian nationalist hat. You know, some guys are saying, oh, no, it's just bottom up. Um, it's just a mass move of God's spirit and revival. Um, it can't be anything less than that. We, we need revival, right? It's, Steve Day says revival or bust. So, yeah, we need a mass move of God's spirit. We need, I prefer the word reformation to revival, but we, but we need something. And, uh, and that's going to come by planting individual churches and raising up individual pastors and preaching the gospel and seeing God convert individual hearts and, and discipling them and all these different things and taking back institutions at an organic grassroots level by, by Christians being discipled and being Christian in the arts and Christian in medicine and Christian in all these different things. So that, that's the grass up bottom, you know. Uh, a grassroots bottom-up kind of uh, thing, um, and and that's inescapable. That's just the Great Commission being successful over time, which I believe because I'm post-millennial. So I think, uh, yeah, you, you got to have that. It's nothing less than that. However, this is where I I would insist, um, not saying that it's top-down to the exclusion of bottom-up, but that it's both and, not either or, but both and. And the reason why is. Um, because the Sodomites, with less than 3% of the population over the course of 40 years, replaced the American flag with a rainbow. And they did it on the White House, and we just saw it last week. So don't tell me that a, that a minority small group of people can't change the fabric of a nation. Their laws, their culture, their customs. No, the mi minorities can make changes can reform the fabric of a culture, of a nation. And, and you don't have to take up arms to do it. So, so when I say top-down, I'm, um, I'm not talking about taking up weapons, physical, literal weapons, but I'm saying, yeah, I, I think that it, it's both. It's preaching the gospel. God has to save a bunch of people. But you see, here's the thing, and I said this earlier, I'll say it again. We have, Christians have had numbers on our side in the past. But the problem is, um, that although we were a mile wide, we were an inch deep. We had quantity, but not quality. So you just had a bunch of weak Billy Graham, gospel only, gospel exclusivism, gospel myopticism Christians that despise God's law, thought the law of God is the bad guy and, and grace is at odds with law and 
just terrible, terrible, terrible theology. And that's how we got here. We didn't get here just because, oh, we, you know, only 10% of the population is Christian. No, we had a lot of Christians. Sure, some of them were in name only. Some of them were false converts. But I think we had a lot of Christians. I think there was a time not that long ago where we had a lot of Christians. And I'm talking about true, regenerate heart Christians. But, but they were theologically weak. They weren't discipled. They weren't discipled. And so what I'm saying is it's, it's bottom up. We need more Christians. But it's not just bottom up. It's also you got to take the Christians that we have right now today and teach them. Teach them about biblical law. Teach them um, about Christian nationalism. Teach them about general equity theonomy and teach them about this and teach them about that. All of Christ for all of life and tell them that they don't have to wait. That we pray earnestly and work towards, as, as far as it depends on us, we, we are praying and working towards revival. But we don't have to wait for revival because God may or may not send it. So what we do is we pray and work towards revival, but we also, we also get to work in, in whatever sphere of life that the Lord has appointed us. So if, if Christians are the minority right now, well, the LGBT homo jihad was the minority not that long ago. And in 40 to 50 years, starting with far less than 3% of the population, they changed the fabric of our society. And, and they didn't do it by picking up automatic weapons and shooting people. Started doing that recently, at least a couple transgender individuals, sadly. Not saying it represents everyone, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, that is happening a little bit. And I don't think it's a coincidence. That said, in general though, no, it was not a physically violent movement, but a minority movement that was organized and strategic and shrewd, had a plan. One of the reasons why progressives, beyond just the LGBT, whatever, liberals, Democrats, one of the reasons that they've been so successful is because they're post-millennial. Whereas most conservatives and Christians are dispensational premillennial. We didn't play the long game. Right? When you think Jesus is coming back next Thursday, well, who cares about institutions? You know? And so, yeah, so I, I think it's both. Move of the Spirit, bottom up, grassroots, preaching, conversion, discipleship, great commission, going forth, and God's word not returning void. It's that. And in the meantime, as we're working and praying towards that, it's also taking the Christians we have, currently a minority, but working hard, not violently, but working strategically, just like progressives did. And knowing that they were successful because they played the long game and had a plan. And I think that we, in that sense, could take a page out of their book, which is really our book, if it wasn't for Schofield and Darby misinterpreting our book, a.k.a. the Bible over the last 150 years, dispensationalism, like you know, complementarianism. I said complementarianism needs to die. Uh, so does dispensationalism. So, all right. Uh, number nine. How uh, patriarchal is the last one. How, how patriarchal will the system be? Can women vote? Uh, will they have to cover their heads? Stay home? All right. This is what I wrote with that. Um, you, you've got a few questions here, and I understand. You, you just you want to know. 
Um, so uh, will women have to cover their heads? No. No, I, I'm a head covering guy. I just forwarded a book by Dale Partridge on covering heads. Um, so I'm pro head covering, um, but I'm pro head covering at church. I'm not, that's it. That's, that's what 1 Corinthians 11 says. It doesn't say that a woman needs to cover her head all the time as she's at home or in, in public or at the grocery store. It's in worship, in worship. So, um, and even then, here's, here's the irony. If you come and worship at my church, Covenant Bible Church in Central Texas, covenantbible.org, check it out. Uh, the majority of women don't cover their head. Now, every week that goes by, I notice that maybe one other does, but I have yet to talk about it a single time since the founding of the church from the pulpit. I've talked about it in a couple podcasts, and I forwarded a book on it. And so the church knows my position, um, but I don't enforce it. And little by little, people are being won over. But again, your question, will women have to cover their heads in society? No. Ironically, even in church, which I do believe is biblical, even then, would it be commanded? Would it be forced? No. No, because it's pan-Protestant. There's different denominations. They're different. So no, definitely no to the women covering their heads. Would they have to stay home? Again, legally? No. No, of course not. Um, but in a Christian nation, by God's grace, I would hope that more women uh, would be able to stay home. A lot of women right now, the problem isn't that they have to stay home. The problem is that there's a lot of women who want to stay home and can't because feminism, complementarianism, dispensationalism, and now a third one, feminism, needs to die. The feminism has so wrecked our culture, it's even wrecked our economy. You know who loves feminism? Men bad, nefarious men. And not just men who are looking for cheap sex, but also men who are looking for cheap labor. Right? If you want to, the biggest advocates of feminism are Fortune 500 male CEOs. <laughs> Why? Because little by little, like all of a sudden, you know, if a, if a man is working hard at his job and doing good work and, and his wife, they just had their fourth kid and he goes to his boss and hasn't had a, a raise in three years and it says, I, you know, I scheduled a meeting and I, I made a case. I just want you to hear my quick 10 minute pitch for why I think I merit a raise and I'm doing more work and I'm doing good work and blah, blah, blah. You know, the boss may not verbalize this and say this out loud, you know, but at some level, what he's thinking is, what what gives you the unmitigated gall, the audacity to think that your wife should be so privileged as to say, stay home and be a mom to your kids. Uh, you're saying that I'm not paying you enough to be a single income family. That's a luxury. You're not entitled to that. Being a single income. Whereas once upon a time in our nation, um, virtually every household was single income and you could own All right now. Granted, they were more frugal. They weren't going to Starbucks every day and spending $6 on a cup of coffee, right? They were drinking Folgers. That's all they had. And it was disgusting, but they didn't know any better and they liked it and they drank it, right? So you're drinking Folgers, but they owned their home and they had one car instead of three, but they owned the car. And the wife could stay home with the children and the husband would go to work and, uh, and they'd still be able to do a vacation once a year. And women were statistically happier than they are today since feminism has taken deeper root. So would women have to stay home legally in a Christian nation? No, women would be allowed to work. Uh, but by God's grace in a Christian nation, uh, eventually that would shape the culture and eventually just like feminism did, anti-Christian, shape the culture, and eventually that shaped the economy that makes women now have to work. 
um, well, Christian nation would work backwards uh, in such a way that um, that it would not only shape the culture, but it would shape the economy to where women could work, um, but many of them would choose not to and could afford not to. And by golly, they would probably be happier. So yeah, women would do just fine in a Christian nation. Um, now addressing, you said, will they have to cover their heads? I did that. Stay home. I did that. Uh, the last one that you said is, can women vote? My wife votes. Um, yeah, women can vote. And women should vote so long as it's legal for them to do so. Um, I believe that women, what I always tell women and Christian women is I say, you need to vote along with biblical values and virtues. You need to vote, cast your vote according to the Bible. And if you're married to a godly man, that means you're casting your vote with him. You are strengthening the household vote. Now that said, I believe in representative government. I don't believe in a raw democracy. I believe in a constitutional republic and representative government. Um, I believe what I'm getting at, particularly as it pertains to your question, James, is I believe in a household vote. We're all represented by someone. It's not crazy. Um, I believe I am patriarchal. I believe uh, patriarchy, father rule. And so, yes, I believe that um, there should be each household gets one vote and the head of household, who would be the husband slash father, he's the one who casts the vote. And he's casting that vote, not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his wife and his children. He is representing them. He's the one who goes to war. If there's a war, he's also the one who casts the vote when there's a vote. And I believe that that's a good thing. Um, a single woman who's an adult, but not yet married, uh, she would still fall underneath her father's vote until she's married. Um, for that matter, if you want to get real technical, I'll get real technical. Um, the Bible says, for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and cling fast to his wife. So a man, an adult man, but who is not yet married, a single adult man, he could literally leave his father's home and get his own place and have a job and all these kinds of things, start storing up, saving up, getting ready for marriage, whatever's going on. Um, but in a, in a biblical sense, covenantal sense, I might say, um, he has not truly left his father and mother. The reason for leaving is to cleave fast to your wife. And so my position is that uh, a single adult man would not get a vote either. It would be married men, who are landowners. They have a vested interest in society, in the nation, in the republic, and they represent, there are people uh, depending on them, right? Um, cultures and societies are built with by men who have mouths to feed. That's how you get, that's how you get society. It's built by men. It's not built by women. It's built by men, and it's built by men who have skin in the game. Who have people who are counting on them. Are there abuses with patriarchy? Yeah. And and any of those abuses that are physical abuses that, that we are aware of, um, they should be penalized by the extent of the law. But patriarchy is a good thing. And I'm not going to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. Um, so who gets to vote? Married men. A single man? Uh, he would fall underneath his father's vote as well as a single woman would. For this reason, the reason that a man leaves his father and mother, in the truest sense, he could physically leave their house and get an apartment or whatever, um, but truly leaving the headship of his father, 
um, is to cleave to a wife, to start his own household. He, he has truly left the father's household when he begins his own. So it would be married men who are landowners, and I would even go further than that. I would be totally down for some kind of system where um, the more members of the household, the more dependents you have, uh, that uh, your household vote is stronger. Um, I don't know exactly how to do that, but I would be open to that idea that a man who uh, has um, a wife and eight children that he is providing for, not eight children he's abusing, right? So C point A, he would, he would be penalized. He would be a criminal, right? And so he would not be able to vote as a criminal if he was abusive to these children. But he has eight children. He's providing for them well. He has a wife. She, he's providing for her well and loving her as Christ loved the church, all those kinds of things. And it's, so it's a household of 10, right? The, 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 the father, the mother, and eight children. Um, that that household, he's representing more people. So just like the electoral college, right? It'd be a miniature version of that, right? If a state has a larger population, it gets more electoral votes. Um, same thing with households. Um, and women are getting a vote in a sense, um, in the sense that uh, they, they are being represented by the one man in the whole entire world who loves them the most. And, and are some of those husbands bad and don't love their wives? Like there's a, sure. But again, in a Christian nation, by God's power and his spirit over time, on the whole, uh, on the whole, you would have godly husbands. And representative government is not oppressive. It's not. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that a woman must be able to vote in a civil election. And for the record, um, splitting the household vote. That's ultimately what women's suffrage did. Uh, few things have caused more suffering for women than women's suffrage, ironically. And what women's suffrage did in the 19th Amendment is it split the household vote. And that, along with no-fault divorce, and it's, uh, it, it destroyed the family, which destroyed the nation. And so, no, I don't think that was a good idea. Um, I don't think that that was biblical. Um, I don't think that that's the first thing on the list, right? So as I'm working towards a Christian nation, um, my list of the, you know, the top 250 things that need to be accomplished, repealing the 19th Amendment doesn't make the list. Um, but if you're asking me, I'm, I'm just trying to be honest with you. You're asking these questions. A lot of Christian nationalists are giving you the runabout. And they're not giving you, uh, you know, it's ambiguous. It's vague. They're not giving you an answer. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be honest and give you an answer. Um, yeah, I think eventually by God's grace, the 19th amendment goes, it goes. And, uh, and I don't think that's oppressive, certainly not unbiblical. And I think that's just fine. And I think that it would probably happen, you know, likely a hundred years from now, not anytime soon. And in the meantime, um, I think that every Christian woman who's listening to this right now, um, you need to vote because your husband, your household needs that vote, right? So um, we, we can't half Christian households vote. So don't be an ideologue. Um, I have to say this to Christians, Christian nationalists and, you know, Christian, you know, patriarchal guys or trad wives, you know, like they're, they're good folks. They're good folks. And I'm one of them and I'm not ashamed to be one of them. I'm proud um, to speak to these people, to pastor these people, to love these people. They are the salt of the earth. They're good people by God's grace. But they do need to be reminded from time to time um, not to be overly idealistic, not to be ideologues. So uh, why well, I think, you know, that maybe women shouldn't vote in civil elections. And so, um, you know, 
I told my wife to stop voting. Please, please don't. Please don't. Because what you're doing right now is you're saying that the pagan, him and his wife get two votes and now you're going to have one. You just cut your household vote in half. Don't do that. So um, I, I'm with you. I, I, I think that women suffered, split the household vote and turned women against their husbands. And statistically, we would not have one Democrat president in the last 50 years if women couldn't vote. So we're talking about dead babies. We're talking about uh, same-sex marriage. Mirage. We're talking about a lot of nasty stuff um, that I, I'm not trying to be hashtag based right now. I'm just trying to be honest and I'm trying to be humble about it. I really am. I'm trying to be biblical. Um, if women could not vote, then you would not have one Democrat president in the last 50 years. Um, women have a different nature than men. It's not just different roles. But the difference in roles stem from a difference in design. It's not male and female roles he assigned them. It's male and female he designed them. We are different in our design. And it's not just physical that men uh, can bench press and women have hips and can birth babies. That's one difference. Uh, but the Bible is very clear that the reason why a woman should not exert authority over a man is not just the order of creation that man was formed first and that woman was from second and that she was made from man and for man. It's not just the order of creation, but it's also the order of the fall. The woman fell first and that the man who is more, not less, but more morally culpable than his wife, than Eve was, he's more responsible um, because he's the head He's a leader and though, because he sinned with his eyes wide open. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, but Adam was not deceived and that doesn't let him off the hook. That, like I just said, he's more responsible. Um, but the difference in nature, not just assignment of roles, but difference of roles and assigning God assigning roles that stems from a difference in his design in nature. That difference is not just physical differences, um, but women, I do believe, are more susceptible to deception than men. I'm speaking in generalities. Can you find one woman who can out bench press one man? Of course. Of course. And can you find um, one woman who's less susceptible to being deceived than one man? Of course. And you can find a lot more than that. You can find hundreds, thousands of women who are less deceived than thousands of men. But in general, on the whole, Men are physically stronger than women, and I believe that men um, are more resilient towards being manipulated, emotionally manipulated and deceived than women. On the flip side, women are also more nurturing, more hospitable, more inviting, more sympathetic um, than men. And you need that. You need that. Men need women. Society needs women, but not for leadership. Those are not the qualities that you need for leadership. So I believe that God has called men to lead. And one of the distinctions between soft complementarianism, 
which is a very ancient doctrine. It traces all the way back to 1988 with Wayne Crudum and John Piper versus biblical patriarchy, which is the reigning dogma of the last 2,000 years. One of the differences between these two things, complementarianism and biblical patriarchy, is that complementarianism says the only distinction in terms of design, there's distinction in roles, but the only distinction in design between men and women is physical. Whereas patriarchy says no, no, even at the level of design, nature, there are differences besides just who can put up more LBs on the old bench press and who has hips and who can have children. Um, no, there are other, other distinctions. One of the things that a woman is called to in 1 Peter chapter 3 is a gentle and quiet spirit. So can a woman be loud and fight, be aggressive, and put that progressive man in his place? Uh-huh. Um, but she's not supposed to. When a woman does that, she's actually going against her nature. Women were not made to be in the public square exercising polemical language, even against bad guys. Men were made to do that. Men sit, not just as elders in the church, but men are called to sit in the city gates as elders. Men. Men fight, and certainly that means physical fighting, going to literal war. But it also means deliberating and defending against ideologies in the city gates, governing, caring, watching over the people, their hearts, their minds. That is an innately masculine thing, and I think that voting is a part of that. I think it is. And uh, yeah, so less dead babies. Uh, less gay marriage, not one Democrat president in the last 50 years. Um, yeah, repeal the 19th Amendment. Do it tomorrow? No. Is it the first thing on the list? No. Does it make my top 250 things on the list? No. But it is on a list. I do believe it's biblical. The church lives in the light of eternity, therefore can afford to be patient, and we're not ideologues. So in the meantime, Christian women, vote. Don't cut your household vote in half. You should vote. Uh, my wife is going to vote as long as she can, and she's doing that at my request. And she's voting with me, and I'm voting with the Bible. Uh, choosing the lesser of two evils in most cases, according to what standard, by what standard? The Bible. God's law. All right. So there you go, James. I'm sure this is a smoking gun for you because, um, well, because I actually answered your questions. But the reason I actually answered your questions is because I just want to be clear for everyone listening um, that there's nothing to be ashamed of. But people will hate this episode. I know they will. People will hate this episode. And it'll be clipped up and it'll go around on Twitter and Instagram. And Christians will hate it. Some of them will be Christian in name only, and some of them will be just, you know, genuinely regenerate Christians who are dumb and wrong and immature. But, um, yeah, so it'll get plenty of hate. But I want to prove to you, James Lindsay, and to everyone listening, um, that there are answers to these questions and that the Christian nationalists should answer them and not be ashamed to answer them. Right? Because it's either right or it's wrong. It's either true or it's false. It's either good or it's bad. I'm a Christian nationalist because I believe it's good. I believe what God deems as the right thing is also the good thing. So I'm not going to blush. 
And I'm not going to kowtow and I'm not going to be ashamed of what I believe the Bible teaches, because I believe what the Bible teaches is that which is morally right and brings glory to God, but also that which is beneficial and good for people. And I love God first and foremost, but I also love people and even unbelievers, atheist people would do better in a nation that submits to God's law than a nation that's pagan and progressive and secular that just replaced the American flag with a homo jihad banner. So that's it for me today. I'm Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. Thanks for tuning in.